Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week, we're discussing the electricity grid and the changes that will be needed if the UK is to reach its net zero target by 2050. With me to discuss that is Nick Windsor, Chairman of the Energy Systems Catapult. Nick Windsor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. So before we look at how the electricity grid will need to change to get us to net zero, can you give us a, a brief introduction to the UK electricity grid as it is now in, in terms of size, complexity, its current technology and so on? Yes, I can. In the UK, we have a highly interconnected electricity grid. We are quite a populous island. We're quite a small island. Energy demand density is quite high. So, so we have a, a highly meshed grid, which you can see across the landscape. It operates as a super grid. The super grid is at 400,000 volts and 275,000 volts. They're the, the very big pylons and lines and lots of actually underground cables, particularly going into our conurbations, uh, operating at those very high voltages. And then they feed substations big substations, they're sort of marshalling points where uh, circuits come together and are connected. And, and that, then they feed down into lower voltage networks at 132,000 volts and below that feed gradually down to our streets and homes. And in town, of course, in the UK, the electricity infrastructure isn't very visible in many towns because it's underground. That isn't the case in places like uh, the United States, for example. You'll see a lot more overhead local electricity supply. But we, you will still see wood, uh, wood pole mounted circuits going out to villages. And quite often when we get severe weather, the vulnerability of the system is on, on those more remote places that are fed by overhead electricity supply. Uh, and that's something we've seen in the very recent past with the storms that have come through the UK. Right. So in order for the UK to move towards net zero, we're obviously going to need a huge increase in electricity in order to replace the fossil fuels used, for example, in vehicles and in domestic heating and so on. What does this mean, both in terms of generation capacity, but, but also in terms of the grid and the grid infrastructure itself? In terms of generation capacity, the historical context on this would be, just to give you a very few figures here, electricity demands that have peaked at about 50 to 60 gigawatts in recent decades. We're looking at very substantial possible increases to that, which I'll come on to talk about. We have an electricity system which carries just another figure here, about uh, 300 terawatt hours. So that's a measure of the total demand on the system. We're expecting those figures to move quite substantially with uh, decarbonizing our economy, partly as a result of the fact that you need a much larger total generation capacity if some of it is intermittent. So if the utilisation of, of, say, wind or solar assets isn't all day, every day, then you need a much larger generation capacity than, for example, if you're using nuclear and fossil fuels uniquely, as we have in the past, 
where availability was of the order of 85%. So what we're looking at is a generation capacity which might move from these days pushing up to about 100 gigawatts as we have a lot more renewables on the system, a lot more wind in particular and solar. And that may well go up to about 250 gigawatts or beyond by 2050, when we have very large amounts of renewables on the system. So that's more than doubling. In terms of total demand that's measured uh, across the whole year, that moves the, 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 the total demand fed from the electricity system from perhaps 300 terawatt hours to, to well over 400 terawatt hours. So that gives you a sense that there's a very large increase driven by two things, the intermittency of the generation, which means you need a a larger generation base, but also the movement of transport and domestic heating in part from fossil fuels directly onto electricity through our uh, our electric cars and, uh, and the use of heat pumps and electricity to create green hydrogen. So you talked about the intermittency, I wonder to what extent there are going to be solutions in terms of storage capacity to take the electricity generated when it is shining or blowing and use of batteries and other things. What's the thinking behind how that's going to develop? Well, I mean, that, that is the, the most important question about the transition. So if we set on a course to increase the use of electricity for in particular heating and and transport and do so from intermittent sources in the way that we've done it in the past then it means we've got to create a much much bigger grid Uh, creating a much bigger electricity grid is a very big project it's time consuming and it's very expensive And in itself, it has environmental impacts like more electricity lines. So at the Catapult, we've been doing an awful lot of work on what would be a better way of doing it than just increasing the size of the grid by double or by triple. And the answer to that is to do several things. The first of which you've touched on, which is to create a lot more storage on the system so that when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, we can store that electricity, possibly even offshore where the wind farms are out in the North Sea and uh, off our coast. And then when the wind isn't blowing, in that case, we can let that storage run through onto the grid and to customers to give a smooth supply. So that's one of the things we can do. We could also put storage up on the supergrid system at the very high voltages and use it onshore. But we may well find it's more economic to put storage not only up at that level, but all the way down through the system at the successive lower voltages at the marshalling points and indeed through to people's homes. So as well as having your car charging If you've got one in your garage, in your home, you have a battery there that allows you to to charge that up when renewable electricity is plentiful. So storage is, is a key opportunity, and that will dramatically reduce the amount of new grid infrastructure that'll be used. The other opportunities 
are all around uh, combining that with demand flexibility and being really smart about the way we in particular organize our electric car charging and uh, the way we heat our homes. To the extent we, we, we use a lot more heat pumps, clearly heat pumps can be turned on and off in our homes without customers really noticing very much difference. Heat pumps tend to run 24 hours a day. They heat up your floors or through wet systems. And actually, if they don't operate for half an hour here or there, it probably doesn't make much difference to the temperature of the home, especially if you've combined it with much higher levels of uh, home insulation so that uh, houses hold on to their heat for longer. So we've got uh, the opportunity for electricity storage. We've got our opportunity to have some demand flexibility by switching those heat pumps on and off. And of course, in terms of car charging, if we can charge cars when it's most convenient from a point of view of how plentiful uh, renewable electricity is, that's better. And there's also the opportunity of using the, all of those batteries in the cars to support the grid for short periods of time if they're plugged in by feeding back from car to grid to support the system. All of these things can be facilitated by a much more modern attitude to what we call digitalization of the grid, which runs right through from really smart applications in customers' homes, which make customers very happy with the, the heat and services they get from their energy supply, right through to integrating those services with running the grid in a very different way, where we're, we're if you like, optimizing the grid locally first and then providing a supporting infrastructure at the highest level rather than a grid that is optimized at wholesale and then just energy passively taken at, at, at homes and businesses. And to what extent does the technology exist now to do what you've just been describing and to what extent is it still something that needs to be developed over the next I don't know five ten fifteen years so there's a real mixture here we've had fantastic progress on renewables we've seen extraordinary changes to the economics of wind power and solar where we've seen the cost of wind power well and solar drop by sort of 90 percent over you know, 10 or 15 years. And even in very recent years, you know, wind power has come down from, uh, just to give you a figure, 130 pounds a megawatt hour to less than 50. I mean, this is extraordinary. Wind power is now, you know, much cheaper than any fossil fuel alternative, although it has to be said that it's intermittent. So comparisons are difficult. So in terms of technology, some of this technology is now quite mature and the economics are very, very strong. So in terms of some of the other technologies, so batteries have developed hugely, but I think have a, a lot further to go, particularly in terms of breakthroughs, which will allow batteries to charge a lot faster, particularly important in terms of, of transport motoring in particular. And, and we'll see continued development of those things. In terms of this, this really smart digital grid, 
the technologies probably exist, but they haven't been brought together and demonstrated. And we haven't really found out how to integrate all of this together yet. It's probably not that we need new technology. It's that the technologies exist, but haven't been applied in this way. And so some really good work on design, demonstration, how regulation and markets can facilitate this very, very flexible, clever, customer-centric grid of the future. That's, that's about developing the way we work with technologies. And then there are areas where genuinely we, we just need, you know, lots of these actually still, but uh, need technological development. Things like, you know, thermal storage. If we could have large capacity thermal storage in houses so that we could store heat well and then provide that over the very cold peaks into the house to save to save having to import a lot of energy when the system's under stress we you know we know there are some some really interesting sorts and things being designed and developed that may well give a give us a chance to blunt the edge of that very high cold weather demand that would help us a lot so some of those areas we could we we we're really still looking for technological development really interesting a whole lot of of things but the point that much of it exists and it's actually the integration is interesting to see how that will develop over coming years and, and are those things that government agencies and universities and others are working towards producing? Yes, we could call this sort of whole system thinking and system integration. Those are ideas that, you know, barely 10 years ago, we weren't really thinking about very much as an industry. The focus was very much more on individual technologies. So how will how how should wind farms work? How can you do carbon capture and storage? Should we have another nuclear power station? So those were the sort of debates that still go on, but were going on. The the focus was on, you know, the historical way of providing power into the traditional grid. What's happened in that 10 years, I think led, I think partly by the excellent work from the catapult, has been a move to whole system thinking where we start to think what happens when you move domestic heat from gas predominantly to electricity this what's called a multi-vector approach where we're getting different energy sources providing uh, different services to customers so that whole system approach where you have to think through so how many electric cars are we going to have at any one time? Are they going to charge at home or are they going to charge on the street or are they going to charge at supermarkets? They're going to charge at motorways. And what's that mean about fast charge or slow charge? So all of those things, how will heat pumps work? How flexible can we make this heat pump load? And how will hydrogen fit into to this, which is probably a very good source of heat for low carbon heat for industry. So that whole system thinking, bring it all together. But then that shouldn't be confused with system integration and system architecture, which is much more about getting closer to the economics of integrating these things together. And what's how will systems need to talk to one another how will they work with the institutional architecture of the system, the, the system operators? 
how will the markets work? How will regulation work to make this system work really well together? How will we make sure there are incentives out there for all of the actors from consumers through to big energy companies to make the right decisions to integrate and operate in the most efficient way overall? whole set of really interesting challenges there. I want to ask you about something a little bit different. As we're moving more and more towards electrification, what are the implications for resilience for our grid? Both, I guess, from natural challenges like the storms we've seen coming through in the last uh, week or so, and also from man-made challenges, cyber attacks and, and so on, with fewer alternatives everything being electrified. What, what does that mean in terms of grid resilience? Well, there's a couple of things going on here. One is that we're seeing, we're seeing significant weather events that, that do place risks on the grid resilience. There are things like, um, in particular, flooding. We've seen uh, some of the major grid installations uh, be flooded in the last decade or so. Clearly, that's led to a lot of discussion and some significant investment in hardening those facilities so that they are resilient to particularly surface water flooding. So that that work is urgent and needs to continue. There are also issues around higher temperatures, clearly, and and how equipment will work in that context. I think that all should be manageable in the normal course of events. I mean, Grids work in much higher temperatures in other parts of the world. So it's you know we we have to we have to learn, and we have to think these things through. But this should all be quite addressable, and and I think some good work's going on. I think those those challenges need to sit alongside the transformation of the grid. And as we're as we're transforming the grid to be much more active and customer centric and flexible, we can meet those environmental challenges at the same time by, you know, this wholesale change to how the grid will operate being designed in a way which is resilient to the change to the climatic conditions that the UK is likely to to face in the future. So the important thing I think is to integrate these two things as we redesign the grid and how it's going to work in the future. So just to finish off, a lot of the targets we talk about 2050 are still some way away, but action is needed now in order to get on the way. What would you say the UK needs to do in the next much shorter period, three to five years, say, to make sure that we are going to be on track to deliver a net zero grid at the time that we actually need one? Well, the government set a, a challenge of getting the electricity grid green by 2035. That's not far away. So we need to be getting very busy over that three to five years. The deployment of renewables is obviously a cornerstone of that and is is going on a pace and needs to be driven hard and fast. Renewables are a very important part of this, wind, solar in particular. So some of those things that are already well underway need to to be accelerated and and continued. We're seeing transport is is very important. We're seeing uh, electric car sales go up very well, 
We really need to be working the next three to five years on the charging infrastructure. We don't want to put customers off by them buying electric cars because they want to help the environment, then finding that you know their experience of operating an electric car is uh, very unsatisfactory because they can't charge. So, so we need to we need to work with the regulatory market structures and the technology to think how we're going to move from all of these petrol and diesel filling stations to a much more combined picture with electric charging. We need to be doing a lot of work on domestic heating. Uh, domestic heating remains one of our biggest challenges. It's a it's a very big part of our carbon dioxide footprint and we know there are some good technologies out there that need to be deployed in particular moving forward with insulating homes so that we make the problem smaller in the first place so we're not using as much energy that's very important and starting to to demonstrate how these smart grid with a much greater degree of probably a deployment of heat pumps local heat networks hydrogen for heating in some areas and how that all combines with the transport, the emerging transport system. They're all things we should be focusing on. And, and actually, I want to come back to one of your previous points that over the next three to five years, we need to make sure we're doing all of that work around whole system thinking and system integration, because we need, we need to set off. We don't want to do the technology stuff first, and then, you know, later on have to catch up on how can we operate all this efficiently, because that will cost customers a lot of money. So we need to be doing this, this thinking about the uh, operability of the system, the multi-vector nature of the system. We need to get out there ahead of that so that we deploy the right assets that when they're operated efficiently can meet customers' legitimate expectations of the energy system. Wow. That's an awful lot of things to do in the next three to five years. A lot of people are going to be very busy. We'll just have to wait and see how that pans out. That's all we've got time for today. Uh, Nick Windsor, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Nick Windsor, Chairman of the Energy Systems Catapult. The issue of rebuilding the electricity grid is the topic of an event being held by the Foundation on the 23rd of March. Information about that event, along with information about all our other events, all our blogs and all previous editions of this podcast, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Until next time, goodbye.